This is My Montessori Life, a podcast that holds up a unique lens to contemporary social, cultural, and political issues. Maria Montessori aimed to reform humanity by building a better human being from the start, preparing young children for a life of profound self-determination, empathy, and wisdom, everything to which an advanced civilization should aspire. The podcast's regular hosts are Barbara Isaacs, President-elect of Montessori Europe and one of the world's leading authorities on Montessori, and David Getman, author of the teacher's textbook, Basic Montessori, and founder of the software firm My Montessori Child, which sponsors this podcast. In this third of three episodes on the theme of peace, Barbara and David are joined by two guests, Charlie Cavaliero, a young researcher on peace education and social justice, specifically in the favela communities in Brazil, who also has field experience in aid for victims of atrocities, and Hannah Bainham, a leading Montessori trainer and author who has run nurseries for Tibetan refugees in India and for low-income families in Turkey. So Charlie, based on your research and fieldwork, what should be the role of education in promoting a more just and peaceful world? Wow, where to start? Where where doesn't it? Um, for me, education is at the heart of everything we do when we think about peace. It provides children with spaces and opportunities to discover who they are, to discover the world around them, to socialize, to play, which is something that we often don't think about very um that's very important, but as we know from the science, play is incredibly important for the development of um, holistic development. Um, And thinking more broadly, education offers society the chance to think critically about the role of peace in the world. However, I think it's important to note that education isn't necessarily a panacea. It can't solve everything. In some countries, like in Brazil, education can also be a space of violence. Children are bullied, schools are targeted, teachers are threatened. This is also the case in refugee camps. In lots of countries that have experienced war and who are rebuilding, education often becomes a contested space where curriculums and teachers are targeted or are used for particular political purposes. So I think it's important to acknowledge that while education provides the foundations for building peace, we have to acknowledge and come to terms with the fact that often educational spaces go against peace. As Montessorians, I think this is an important thing to remember in our classrooms. We can show the children how we expect them to behave. We can instill behaviors that we would like to see. But also, we have to acknowledge our role as teachers in communicating perhaps unwanted behaviors or unwanted opinions that we have developed through our lives and that we perhaps subconsciously transfer to children in the classroom. There's a sort of seminal article in the peace education field that describes the two faces of education, 
as I've mentioned, on the one hand, it can be a hugely transformational, transgressive and revolutionary space, but at the same time, one that is fraught with danger and violence and can be a space of huge harm. So I think when we think about peace, it's important to reconcile how, as practitioners, we want to instill the values that we would like to see in the world with our children, whilst recognizing the potentially harmful um, behaviors or opinions that we can sometimes transfer without meaning to. Charlie, you have um, experience studying education in emergencies. Um, I'd uh, be great to hear more about that and, and how that related to what you found in Brazil. Yeah, so before I entered my training um, in Montessori, I was doing a master's in international education and development at the University of Sussex here in the UK. And I focused specifically on education emergencies. The reason I decided to choose this degree was because of my experiences in Brazil. I saw firsthand the power that education can have in situations of conflict, of violence, and of fragility, and how classrooms offered spaces where children could come and play, talk to each other, learn, and that were, that were safe, often in, in situations of war. Education is one of the first things to go as people leave their homes and flee conflict. And for me, seeing the children come to the project that I was working in every day with a real thirst for learning, a thirst for creativity, a thirst for problem solving and understanding, inspired me to study education in a, in a sort of broader international context and to see how policies and programs of things like the UN and the frameworks that we have as, um, as an international education community can help or sometimes hinder our work as educators in promoting peace. The context in Brazil, although not an official quote-unquote war, exposes children to extreme levels of violence. And being able to understand the mechanisms that underpin violence and the mechanisms that we can employ within curricula or pedagogy that can help mitigate that violence was something that I found hugely inspirational. After I finished my master's, I was searching for a way that I could contribute to that work. Obviously, in, at university, you learn lots about the theories, the scholars, the papers, the articles, but not so much about the practicalities of what peace education might actually look like in the real world. So through my reading, I found Montessori. And although I recently found out that I went to a Montessori school as a child, um, it was reading about Montessori's work um, with UNESCO and in the wider international community to do with peace that inspired me to um, pursue Montessori training. And quickly through the, <laughs> the tutelage of Brava and Hannah, I found that it connects absolutely with 
with peace and the um, aims and objectives that I that I had going or leaving my masters and kind of wanting to discover what peace education, what a pedagogy of peace might look like. I think that key word interdependence is so foundational to the Montessori pedagogy and connects so nicely and so profoundly with peace. That's really been my kind of motivating force um, through the training that I've been doing recently. I think that idea that we are all connected, we are all supporting one another, we are all supporting the planet, the environment, we all have a responsibility, we all have a role to play, is one that is transformational, it's revolutionary. And if we can instill those values, those ideas, that critical thinking in young children, I think we can go a long way in um, solving, perhaps, <laughs> certainly tackling some of the issues that we're seeing in the world today. Um, I, I think Hannah mentioned in the last um, uh, episode that Montessori is very much an, um, become an elitist sort of um, venue for early education. Where did you see the opportunity in somewhere like Brazil to make it more accessible to, to other people? Absolutely. I think that, to be honest, that was one of my main hesitations when I first um, started the training. I saw all these beautiful materials and all these beautiful classrooms um, on, you know, on the internet or on Instagram and was, a, was yeah, couldn't, couldn't necessarily see how something like that would fit in to some of these um, contexts where resources are limited and teachers are trying to entertain a class of 250 four and five-year-olds with nothing but a chalkboard and some, and some paper. But thinking about it further and through, through my own reading and research and through the training, I think more and more those resources are, while important, of course, somewhat superfluous to the Montessori philosophy as a well, as a, as a philosophy, I think the understanding of the child that the Montessori method instilled in practitioners, the understanding of development, the understanding of this interdependence of, of responsibility, of, of freedom, as we've spoken about, really transcends the resources and almost imbibes the resources with those principles and as such can be applied to any resources. If you have sand, you can use the sandpaper numerals. If you have sticks and stones, you can do cards and counters or the spindle box. The materials themselves facilitate the philosophy, not the other way around. And I think for me, that's been a really important revelation, I suppose, for where I see the role of Montessori going forwards in a, in a broader context. It's the, the deep sense of, 
of being, of knowing, of understanding the world that um, drives Montessori, drives Montessorians and can be the, the key principles that take us forward as we try to sort of um, <laughs> maybe not rid ourselves of the kind of elitist um, uh, stigma perhaps that has, has unfortunately kind of surrounded Montessori, but to, you know, expand the impact, expand the work, think of it as a transformational message, I suppose, as a way of doing that is different, that is um, positive, that, it, that is peaceful. Um, I think that those are, it's, it's kind of easy to get lost in the, in the aesthetics of Montessori sometimes. And I feel like for parents, that's obviously quite a, an, an easy entryway into Montessori. They see a nice classroom and they think that the, the quality of the, the education is reflected by the quality of the classroom. In my experience, it's quite the opposite. <laughs> yeah, I mean, often Montessori nurseries who, you know, have the same pink tower they've had for 40 years and they're, you know, retouch the paint every few years mm. are probably more authentic than the ones that buy a new set every 18 months, you know. For sure. Um, but yeah, that's, that's very helpful. But, you know, in the context of uh, an early years education, how do we communicate to the children that clearly social change of some kind is necessary um, and maybe can't be achieved by consensus or by, you know, um, conciliation and, and, mm. and collaboration? Mm. Or do we communicate that at all? Or do we leave that out? Do we just kind of keep them in, you know, flowers and teddy bears? Mm. Or, you know, do we do we help them see the reality that maybe some sort of activism, which is more than just um, self-improvement, is necessary. Sure. I think you have to be careful here. <laughs> uh, that it's not your activism that you are uh, instilling in the children. Um, I think that children, we know that through Montessori, that children are in an absorb a time of absorption. They absorb at mind. And so therefore exposing them to the world and allowing them to have a glimpse of what the world is like by listening, observing, and bringing the world to the child. I mean, it's our, it's our duty as, as practitioners during this time to, to show them, to open up that world. It's that idea of social cohesion and understanding. And I think it's, we can't just be teddy bears and flowers and <laughs> butterflies and that's not what the children want. You know, we really need to observe what is important to them. And like Charlie said, that critical thinking, asking those open-ended questions, really finding out what interests them. It's far more than the pink tower. <laughs> Actually, the pink tower is not very used in a Montessori classroom anymore. Um, it's, it's more about, you know, those questions and really listening to the child and responding to those questions and making sure the environment is inclusive, that the children see themselves in the environment, they see their families, they see their culture, they see their world, but also maybe in a place that's more 
homogenous, that, that idea that they are exposed to new things, right? And that's our duty is to give children the seeds, give children the keys so they can open the doors. Right. That's very well put. Barbara, do you have an insight on that same point? Um, I would just like to add, I absolutely agree with what Charlie and Hannah have said. Um, but I would also like to add that um, for Montessori to really be meaningful for the children, we need to be cautious about the way how we listen to them. And uh, with the child needs to be valued for what they bring into the classroom, irrespective of their background. And equally, we need to know ourselves and continuously question our attitudes to the children, because each one of us has got a history. Each one of us has been influenced by our life's experiences, which can sometimes color our relationships with the children. Um, in the Steiner education, um, the educators say we need to be worthy of the children. And I think that is a really important consideration, that we need to really deserve the children's trust and respect their efforts. It is the child will be validated through our attitudes, and therefore it will be easier for them to see the needs of others and see their place within the community. So developing a sense of well-being and belonging, irrespective where the children are, is fundamental to their personal development as human beings. Thank you, Charlie. I think there was something you wanted to add to. I just wanted to say, I think there's, um, there's a misconception that the early years, like you said, is sunshine and rainbows, that there isn't space for activism, that there isn't space for revolutionary thinking. Um, and I see it very much the opposite. We know that children in this incredibly important stage of life are their brains are developing more than they ever will in the rest of their lives. This is a crucial, crucial moment where we can introduce skills and um, behaviors or um, tendencies that will, like Hannah said, enable them to be critical and open to the world, to accept that difference is something beautiful and should be, and should be welcomed, not be shunned and to be scared of. Um, there's uh, one of my kind of educational heroes was Paulo Freire, who was a Brazilian um, revolutionary educator. And he, similar to Montessori, I think they had a lot in common, actually, um, came up with this idea called conscientização in Portuguese, which basically means coming, reaching consciousness of a problem. And it is... His method of education was exactly that. It was posing questions to his students and working with his students in conjunction with his students to come to terms with their reality, to critique their reality, to understand the structures of oppression that they were living under and to change those structures from the inside out. And I think, like Freire, Montessori saw her pedagogy as a problem-posing pedagogy she didn't want the children to be 
fed, force-fed the curriculum. She wanted them to discover it for themselves. That's the whole idea. So the idea that the early years can't be revolutionary, that there isn't space for activism, isn't very Montessorian. (laughs) (laughs) So I'd, I'd say we can all be a bit more revolutionary and give the children credit for their critical reasoning, their their desire to see social change, their desire to combat injustice, their desire for peace. And that can be, you know, that would be an amazingly powerful thing to, you know, bring up a generation of Montessoris, of Freries, of revolutionary activists. (laughs) 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 Anti-authority. Uh, we spoke in the last episode about um, how children naturally seek justice, um, particularly in their personal situation. So there's no doubt that in places uh, like um, India, and amongst the refugees or in Brazil, that they um, are perceiving human suffering, that they know that there's suffering all around them. How do we respond to the desire that's probably in all human beings, that if there's human suffering occurring now, shouldn't every possible effort be made to stop it? So is it enough to become enlightened or, you know, and and, and, and to discover our own um, meaning of peace? What about the suffering that's happening right in front of us? I think... As Montessori educators, and this is something I've really been thinking about recently, I think we're on the cusp of a of almost a Montessori revolution. Che <laughs> Guevara mm-hmm. would be proud. No, <laughs> that idea of people are challenging and discussing things more, and people, teachers, are called to take action. We can't just sit sit and sing Kumbaya and talk about what a beautiful, peace world this will be. We actually have to do something about it. And often, the children have the best ideas of what to do. I think children hold this compassion, this empathy, that we as adults, we grow hard and distant from. But really watching and listening to the children. For example, I had a boy who was just obsessed with recycling. I've never seen anything like it. <laughs> uh, he would In Turkey, he would follow me around and follow everyone around and make sure that everything went in the right bins. Uh, and his passion, I mean, he, he made a sign to put up on the door saying, we recycle here. And he made sure that all the children understood what recycling meant. And he was the educator. He was taking action. It was such a small thing, you know, compared to the rest of the suffering in the world. It was such a small thing. But it was so tangible to him. And it was so beautiful to watch his action. And I think we need to encourage children to take action. Uh, and, and teachers to take action and to be part of the solution, not just kind of, you know, talk about, talk about the issues, but, but do something about it. Yeah, I mean, I think that's really powerful that um, it's incumbent upon teachers to draw out of children their passions for seeking change and justice. I think um, it is definitely in there. And a lot, I know it gets suppressed because... You know, they don't want to feel like they're spoiling the mood by bringing up <laughs> some issue of uh, urgent 
reform that's required. Um, Barbara, go ahead. I actually think that the teachers themselves need to take more responsibility in bringing these issues to children's awareness. Some When I first started being a Montessori teacher, I had a colleague who had a, a nursery in the north of England, and it was at the beginning of the deforestation of the Amazon. And she explained to the children that uh, much of the meat that they eat in their hamburgers at McDonald's had come from the, des from the Amazon and that this is what has had to happen and how it impacts the people who live there. And these five-year-olds became such agents of change that they refused to have McDonald's meals because they didn't want to harm the forest and the people so far away. So, um, so children definitely have this agency if things are presented to them in a, an acceptable way and if they are, are considered uh, to be worthy of the information. So, you know, even when we waste so much food in the Western world, just explaining to children where the food comes from and how long it takes to grow or produce milk needs to encourage their thoughts about what it takes to get the food on the table. Uh, because we take it so for granted that you go to the supermarket and you buy whatever you want. And you know, we are hugely privileged in that. Yeah. Uh, one of my heroes, uh, Jane Goodall, who I listened to a webinar with <laughs> last night, uh, she was talking a lot about this. And what I really enjoy about her words and her working with children is she's not showing the world as the horrors that exist. She's actually tuning into the beauty of the animals and tuning into the beauty of the communication, the interconnection of, of the animals. Uh, and as a result, children naturally come up with solutions, right? It's not, I think our world is a lot of fear. <laughs> and if we continue to unload the burden of fear on our young children, they'll be almost paralyzed with the, with the thoughts of what the world will be like. Uh, I think that positive aspect, showing those, those, the beauty within uh, nature and she said last night at the at the webinar, she said, every day we make an impact and we have a choice of what impact we make. And I think that that's true for the children and I think it's true for the teachers. Every day when we go into the classroom, no matter how small, even if it's just a smile at, at the boy in the corner or, uh, you know, a look of, of reading a story to somebody, no matter how small, we're making an impact and we have a choice of what impacts we're going to make. And I think... We as teachers, we need to be conscious of this. Charlie, you, um, you've sort of taken on this, uh, the concept of peace education as a sort of lifelong goal um, that, you know, something you are now in the process of formulating as you learn more about Montessori. Um, is, do you already have the core of uh, kind of what is a peace education program? What what would that begin to look like? Or are you still in very much in the early stages of creating um, some principles and, and, and values to follow? Um, goodness, if only. Um, I think as, as we've spoken about before, I think peace comes from the communities. And I think that's where 
we have to start. Um, there is, you know, as Hannah was saying, this, this is an important moment. We have all of these incredible movements, all of these incredibly brave people standing up for and defending their rights. And we have to recognize and understand where and which side of that we want to fall on and how we want to contribute to that work. So for me, I think peace education at its core is, is that. It's, it's defending the rights of others. It's standing up for the rights of others. Listening. It's listening. Is in, yeah, listening, incredibly important. Listening to voices that have been historically unheard, have been historically silenced, is incredibly important. Making space for those voices in our work is incredibly important. There's, there's a real need for critical, really critical thinking when it comes to, to peace education. How the intersections of, of gender, race, sexuality, culture interplay in a modern, globalized, crazy, scary world is, as we, as we said, incumbent on teachers to, to introduce children to those things, to not be scared of the hard issues, to give the children credit for their ability to take on these difficult questions and to recognize what role we play in that. I think if there was one model of, of peace education, it would be a bad thing, to be honest. I think it has to be diverse and it has to be contextual and it has to be grassroots and it has to come from the people who are, who are teaching. It has to come from the teachers. I think we can't be afraid of showing children that things can be messy. There's no such thing as sort of perfect answer or the perfect solution. We have to uncover it together with, you know, these principles of human rights, equality, equity, transparency, fairness, deep within the core of everything we do. There is a middle ground, you know. You can be wrong. You can experiment. You can try. You don't have to get it right the first time. And these are all principles that are instilled in the Montessori pedagogy. Um, and I love that idea of kind of grayness. There's an excitement in grayness. If, if black and white, it was, you know, if everything was black and white, you know, you, you know where you stand. There's no room for experimentation. There's no room for sort of revolution or different ways of thinking or inclusion of different voices, inclusion of different faces. Um, so I think, yeah, that, that kind of turn towards really critical thinking as to the role of education more broadly and the role of peace more broadly. Um, if it was, if it was easy, I think we'd hopefully already be there. <laughs> so speaking of scary, uh, a scary world, there might be some people listening to this who think, well, that's all you know, admirable and, and, and idealistic. What do we do about irredeemably evil actors who gain absolute power? I mean, you might, I won't name anybody, but 
a few might come to mind. So um, do we just ignore that and say, oh, well, they'll go eventually? Um, or, or do we have to take a stand? Or what, what's our relationship, at least to the children, in respect of that? Should they know about what such people in the past? Or, and, and if so, how do we frame uh, why that happened and, and how people responded? Yeah, that's a diff- diff- difficult question, isn't it? I think there's one of the crucial things about Montessori is, is, is being truthful with the children. If they ask you a question, you tell them the answer. I think obviously there are instances where introducing material, well, the, the introduction of material always has to be appropriate for the age group, of course. But if for some reason a child has come to you with a difficult question, do your best to answer the question. It might not be the right answer. It might not be, you know, your most perfect moment as a teacher. But I think that starting a conversation with a child is never a bad thing. There's obviously ways that it can be done. um, But having the conversation, I wouldn't say is bad. I think there's there's a difficult line between erasure and censorship and um and truth isn't there i think that's something you kind of probably have to figure out in the moment (laughs) i don't think there's the right or wrong answer i think often some of the actions i've seen in montessori environments that include peace and include these conversations often very tokenistic (laughs) it's oh we're Black History Month, and we're going to have black authors on our literary shelf, and uh, we're going to, you know, you know, talk about these things. But actually, it should be ingrained within the culture, not just a month, not just a time, not just a place. I think that idea of challenging stereotypes as well. Um, I've been thinking a lot about the knowledge and understanding material, the cultural material. Uh, those continent boxes, a lot of those boxes are have some pretty racist things in there <laughs> or things that I've seen, you know, just think you're perpetuating stereotypes of not many Chinese children wear those Chinese costumes anymore. Why are we pointing out that, you know, they wear it on special occasions? Uh, you know, in the same way, if we were to see a box of English in England, would we have children in suits and ties? Probably not. <laughs> you know, it's it's really seeing, it's challenging those stereotypes and it's really challenging that idea of just being tokenistic. That The idea of the peace rose to me at first was just so beautiful, right? That conversation of giving a child the peace rose to say, I'm open to conversation with you. But now, recently, I've been thinking about this. And again, I think it's just another tokenistic symbol (laughs) in our Montessori environments. Unless the child wants to say sorry or knows what they've done wrong or knows the issue or it's in, they understand the issue, that rose is just a symbol of, okay, if I give them the rose and the conflict is over and the teacher will stop looking at me, (laughs) right? I'll stop being the center of attention. Um, I think there's a lot of beauty, as Charlie was saying, there's a lot of beauty in our materials and our and our objects. And I mean, I am, I love Montessori materials. I love teaching the curriculum areas. But it goes so 
it's so much more than the materials. It's so much more than the curriculum we try and set up to be inclusive. It's really that philosophy and and encompassing that philosophy and really making sure we live that philosophy every day. And I think Montessori is not just a pedagogy. It's a it's a philosophy and it's a it's a lifetime choice basically and I, I'm very happy to <laughs> have found it and hopefully others have found it and it sounds like a cult now and <laughs> <laughs> try and avoid that um, but but yeah I think it's that challenging that idea of just being tokenistic. Hannah you were um, in Turkey for a number of years and worked with a parent cooperative there what can you tell us about um, what was distinctive about that experience in relation to peace and understanding and um, the goals that we've been discussing? I think working with parents is a very interesting uh, part of our job as teachers. Um, I had to work very closely with parents as the parents own the school <laughs> and uh, Often the parents have their own agendas and we'll try and kind of make sure that those are in there. But I think it's a lot about, again, educating the parents and educating the adults. And if you think about, you know, in terms of being a teacher, we do a lot on child development and we have an understanding of this, but parents don't have that same training sometimes and they just need someone to listen to them and, and be compassionate with them uh, and to talk about how to deal with difficult situations at home. Um, my my job in Turkey, again, I, I ran a parent cooperative, uh, which was, again, a, a school. It was a nonprofit school, but there were still fees involved. But one of the most rewarding experiences I had was actually going into the neighborhood crushes in the very poor areas of Istanbul uh, and doing training with the mothers there who, who run these small crushes. And again, it was not about the beautiful numeracy and literacy materials. It was about just the practical life the activities of everyday living, that care and allowing the child to participate in the community, in the family, in the environment, and feel that they belong. And uh, and I, I really enjoyed, um, you know, working with these teachers to see how creative they were and how and things that they brought into the classrooms, into their crushes to to help children participate in, in the world. And uh, I think... Yeah, I, I, again, I think it's about working with parents and it's about working within the community, uh, seeing what is out there behind the walls of the school. It's having those walks. It's having those uh, those connections with shopkeepers and, and everything to kind of help the child feel that there's something bigger than themselves uh, and they belong to something greater than themselves. I know that um, a lot of what we've been talking about is, is the context of the early education in the community. And it's almost anathema these days to the idea of encouraging children to reach out and connect to strangers. I mean, it's kind of the last thing you want them to do, according to, um, you know, a, a lot of uh, early education guidelines. Um, and yet, actually, that's necessary if we're ever going to move towards the visions that we've been discussing. So, um, what, what would be your views on that? How do we how do we encourage that? I mean, for example, in the the early learning goals that we have here in England, 
Um, they talk about knowing the difference between me and other kinds of people, you know, as a sort of <laughs> learning goal, uh, which isn't the point, really. It's not knowing the difference, actually. It's knowing the similarities. Um, so I, I'm just interested to hear your views on children and the world outside their, you know, their family and their immediate contacts. Uh, this, I again attended another webinar, lots of webinars this week, um, uh, but Andy Luca was talking about the sense of community uh, in the Montessori Europe webinar this week, uh, and uh, she came up with this quote, and it's something I had read before, but I hadn't really understood it, uh, and it comes from Education for Peace, again by Montessori. And she talks about, uh, we find ourselves lost at this point in a maze of contradictions. Only the child can light our path through it. The child is the only guide to what education should be. Only he can help us understand the complications of social life and man's unconscious aspiration to be free in order that he may bring about a better social order. Man seeks freedom in order to build a supernatural society. He does not seek freedom in order to get his own way, but in order to live. And this quote really struck me. Again, Montessori was just so wise, you know, that idea of looking to the children to see what it really means, because we are lost in the maze of contradictions uh, within our modern world. And even in Montessori's own writing, it's full of contradictions. <laughs> it could be a, one could call it a maze, perhaps. Um, but that idea of that that the child seeks freedom not only to get his own way. So it's not about their own, you know, their own motivation, their own uh, hormade that's what's driving them, right? It's in order to live, right? It's what it means to be human is to make these connections. And I think, as always, we just need to, to look to the children for the answers there. Thank you. That's a wonderful quote. I'm glad to have it repeated. Barbara, do you have a view on, on this question? Um, I think that it is really important for us to understand that we need to be, we need to demonstrate some kind of moral code to the children, that we have to have our own values. And some of the questions they will ask us are difficult, but if we have a stand about things. We need to be honest with the children and trying to find ways how to explain them in a simple way so that they can share in the value or in the power of belief, in the power of our quest for the positive change in the environment, positive change in the world. I think that that is really, really important aspect of grappling these issues of today. And as Hannah said about her work with parents in Turkey, I think that there is real need to work with parents um, and need to show them the power of the child, exactly as the quote says. The child has got the power to want to better the world. We have got this human energy to create and um, and the creativity can be can be positive or negative, and we need to spark the interest towards the positive change in the world. 
rather than in the destructive tendencies that we always hold. And I think that there is um, one beautiful thing I love about Montessori. It promotes collaboration. It teaches the children how to do things together. And uh, it, to some extent, removes the competitiveness of the traditional education. And I think that competition promotes uh, aggression, it promotes envy, it promotes all the qualities which actually undermine the powerful human tendency for the better. And I think that's what we need to help parents understand. The children can change the world. They have got the capacity, but we need to help them to to unfold these natural human tendencies for goodness, for beauty, for connection, for serving the community. We need to give them the opportunity to fulfill their cosmic task of contributing to society. And I think that's important. Okay, great. Let's leave it there. Um, Thank you to Barbara and David and Hannah and Charlie. Um, That was great. Thank you. We'll see you next time. Mm